0: This is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open-source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics open-source software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode.
1: This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at SustainOSS.org.
2: On the panel today are Brian Prophet. My name is Brian Prophet. I am a manager on the community outreach team with Red Hat's open source program office and also an avid member of the Chaos Project. And you were a
0: board member for since the beginning. So thank you for your service and all of your contributions so far bringing up this community.
2: It was my pleasure. It's certainly a great organization to be a part of. Matt Germanprey.
3: Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. I am a professor at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, in the college of information science and technology and i'm also one of the co-founders of the chaos project former co-director of the board of the chaos project and current board member so again great to be here
0: and georg link hi everyone good to be with you again i'm the director of sales at petrusia co-founder of the chaos project board member co-director maintainer of several working groups And one thing we have talked about in the chaos project is metrics, and we are branching out the conversation into several different areas. And I'm super excited that we have a special guest with us today, who is starting open source at a university and really is interested in metrics at the university. So Stephen Jacobs,
4: welcome. And Please let our listeners know who you are. Hi, panel. My name is Stephen Jacobs. As Georg said, I am originally and still a professor in the School of Interactive Games and Media in the Golisano College of Computing at RIT. But recently, I became the director of Open at RIT, which is one of the first academic OSPOs, if you will. And so we're gearing up to try to do some discovery and some analysis of who's doing what on campus. That's really awesome. And before we jump into
0: the whole conversation about what does it mean to do open on campus and how do you measure that, maybe we can get some more background on
4: how you got here. Sure. So when the One Laptop Per Child rolled out, 2008, 2009. As a games professor, I wanted my students to make educational games for that project. And for those of you who don't know about it, it was an effort by MIT and a group of co-conspirators to try to create what was supposed to be a $100 laptop. The economy changed, so it became a $200 laptop for the developing world. And it was not per se to give students in the developing world a computer and have them be programmers, but it was to essentially build out the one-room schoolhouse. That this device would allow them to access libraries elsewhere that they didn't have, that they would be able to do science experiments when they didn't have a chemistry or physics lab with sensors, that they would be able to do art projects, and have a music room when all they had was a one-room schoolhouse. I had some great innovative technology. You could look at it. You could take it outside because in lots of places in the developing world, it's too hot to be in a schoolroom in the summer. And it had a special screen that would dim down to be totally reflective so that you could work on it in full sunlight. And it pretty much drove the evolution of the netbook, where up until The OLPC, XO, Laptop, there were only these large, heavy laptops. And people saw what was being done with the XO and said, "Ah, I want one that's that small and that easy to carry around. So we started making games for this community, and the software and the hardware for the OLPC were all open. And so that's how I got my start in open software, open hardware, open writ large. And my students at the end of the first class said, well, can we have a second class? And then RIT is what's called a cooperative education university. This means that students must have full-time paid work as part of their educational program. Go ahead and get all A's in all your courses. If you haven't done your co-op blocks, you don't get your diploma. And so then the student said, we really like the project that we made in class. Can we get a co-op and work full time on that? So we figured out a way to do that. And then the student said, could we get a minor in open source? And so we created a minor in open source and free culture. And uh, along the way, we created an experiential program, experiential education. So we had speaker series off and on. We did hackathons before. Most people at the university were doing hackathons, and then we formalized the co op opportunities into a program called LibreCorps so that when there's a funder who can support it, we create co ops for students to work with non NGOs and, and humanitarian orgs and things like that. Most recently. UNICEF Innovation and UNICEF Ventures contracted with us to mentor their venture teams, which much produce open technology and open solutions, and how the open source way works. How to prepare for community, how to build a welcoming and easily accessible environment to folks rolling into a project for the first time. Hence my attraction to what Chaos does, and so that's where we came from. And when I heard last year at OSCON that Johns Hopkins University was soft launching their OSPO, I went to my university and said, hey, we should create an OSPO. We're not calling it an OSPO, we're calling it an open programs office because people do lots of other things at the university rather than just software. And we didn't want to Kind of scare away the art school and the engineering school and all those other folks by saying open source. I don't do software. So that's where we're at. And we've been in business for about two months. Stephen,
3: from your early experiences with the one laptop per child time, what are the things that are still relevant today with the work that you're doing around open source? What's the connection between where you started, and where you're at today. So the
4: whole humanitarian thread, a lot of the work that I connect the students with has to do with supporting humanitarian efforts or civic efforts. That's continued. Really, OLPC was very community-oriented to begin with. It was community matters to teach the, the teachers how to use the technology lots of software, lots of enhancements to the operating system, which was written in Python on top of Fedora. And Red Hat was a great supporter, really, not just of OLPC, but of the work my students and I did at RIT. For eight or nine years, they helped support the program. Tom Calloway, who's now at AWS, has been a great champion for us when Red Hat was involved with the program. So the community thread has always been there, and the humanitarian thread, and the educational thread. And a lot of my incentive, my personal incentive to go ahead and create Open at RIT is really to be able to kind of mentor the faculty and staff of the university the way that I've been able to kind of mentor the students and educate the students all these years to going kind to of bring the university in as well as an active participant rather than just a bystander. So Stephen, like you clearly
2: have been working in the open source community for quite some time and RIT is certainly a fixture within the open source community. I remember when you first announced the open source academic program for the open source minor that you mentioned earlier, that was really exciting. You know, as a journalist, seeing that kind of expansion into the academic world was certainly very exciting. And now, clearly not resting on your laurels, but how specifically when you talk about the open source office that you're working with, what are some of the immediate goals for the program that you're Launching here or continuing, I guess would be the better word. I know that you've got an advisory board, you've got some people that I know that are on the advisory board. So it's really exciting work there. So, can you detail that in a little bit more specificity?
4: Sure. And for people who really want to get into it, the webpage that we have, which is www.rit.edu/slash research/slash open, you can get a link to our charter right off of that page, which lays out what my marching orders for the next two years are. There's kind of two or three different levels to what's going on. There's the, the faculty and staff support level. The way I was able to demonstrate to the university that there would be interest in this at the behest of the provost and the vice president of research was to try to organize a university-wide meeting, to use the, the office of the vice president of research to say, hey, there are all these interesting... I know everybody's doing these small little open projects. The engineers do hardware, the programs do software, the art school does creative commons licensed work. What if we had a conversation about how the university could respond to that? And I got 50 RSVPs from 37 different units across campus. Not just the academic programs and not just the technology academic programs, but liberal arts, the art school, the library, the foundation officers, the CIO's office. It was just a wide, wide spread. And about two-thirds of those folks who RSVP'd were already doing work in the open space, and another third wanted to get started. And all of them had different needs and different interests. So at the faculty and staff level, things that we hope to be able to pull off are some professional development programming, both for the folks who are new to open and for the people who want more depth and new aspects of open or new to them that they haven't pursued before. Like, I have a project that wasn't open. I want to make it open. Those kinds of questions came up. How do you make money or support an open effort outside of the university and whatever they can do? How do you build capacity? So some programming there around support, working with the, the development office to help them identify foundation and industry sources of research support, networking within the industry. So, for example, it's I, I've had the pleasure to meet a lot of people in the to-do group over the years. And if you're a professor, there are foundations and industry members that want to support research. And they'll say, hey, you'll get this email from Google, let's say. Here are the things that Google Research wants to dive into. This year, we have specific interests in these areas of I don't know, blockchain and, and AI and language recognition. And these are the specific things we're interested in, but we also want to hear what you're thinking about in those areas. And, and maybe we can work together. And these types of industry solicitations often have a, a bullet point here that says, you will do better, or we require that you have a champion within the company. So one way we can help support my faculty and staff members when those solicitations come out is people can come to me and say, hey, you know, this Google thing looks interesting and here's the work I do and I think it matches, but I don't know anybody at Google. And then I can say, well, I know a couple guys in the open source office in Google. And let's talk, maybe they can be your champion or maybe they can point you to the folks within Google who can be champions for you. So that would be one way we could support faculty and staff work. Another way is that LibreCore concept where I have students who have a lot of experience in open source originally working for co-ops, for NGOs, we could create a team that looked inward to faculty and staff to try to support their projects. To be able to say to them, well, if you're starting something new, professor, open source needs are open hardware, or open data, they all need a community around them. And communities don't just grow overnight like Jack's Beanstalk. You really need to design your pipeline. You need to build your online presence. You need to do all these things to give yourself the best opportunity for success in growing that group to help you build what you want to build. And so we would provide that support to them. That's what we did for UNICEF, And we've done for other folks rather than dealing with people who are looking for another student programmer to help them build more tech. Because there are other ways to find
3: that. So, Stephen, do you counsel people as well through this process? And what I mean by that is I know that organizationally there can be reasons to not contribute code back to a project, as an example. And I know that in scientific, open source software, quite often the software is solving a highly localized problem for a specific set of researchers. Is there anything that you or or your group does that maybe says this isn't a candidate for open source and maybe we need to think about it a little bit differently? There's not a big community because the problem is so hyper localized. Do you do that type of work too? It's certainly work we might be able to do once we get started. <laughs> Fair enough.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would certainly be, you know, with that team, right? Let's say I had a team of two or three students that I found support to be able to provide this kind of work for the university. We'd certainly be acting not unlike a consulting firm, an in-house consulting firm, where three students and, and a faculty member, or should there be funding out there to support a staff member as well, they're only going to be able to do so much. And so I anticipate that, say, at the middle of a fall semester, that group would put out a call and say, hey, we're open to talk to people about what they might want to do in the spring. And then we'd have to look at those and decide what we had the capacity to do, what matched. And one of the functions that I've discussed with our advisory board is, would be that we would do like a first cut. And then we get their input. And then we finally decide, okay, Professor So-and-so, we can take your project on, we can't take your project on, that kind of thing. And then that kind of leads in, Matt, you kind of spoke to the policy side a little bit, the university level. That's the second half of what we're gonna try to do. RIT at the moment has a pretty standard university IP policy. It's not something that was written to kind of navigate around the issues of open, it's pretty boilerplate in terms of what universities produce. And so helping the university navigate, modifying that IP policy or creating an IP policy dedicated to open is something that I hope to provide RIT the opportunity to evolve to. This kind of IP questions touch the Academic Senate, they touch the legal office, they touch the tech transfer office, and I don't want any of those jobs. (laughs) I'm going to be saying to different groups, you know, here are the things we need to think about. Here are some models that other universities have taken. Here are things that you can choose to do, either by taking it on as the university yourself or working with outside businesses to try to figure out that people like Bittergia or FASA or those types of consultancies, these are ways you can handle this and you don't want to do it internally. But I'm going to try to make very clear that I am not going to be doing that job all the way through. (laughs) Yeah, there are other questions at the OER level, the Open Educational Resource Office, the open source textbooks and such as you will. We have, like many universities, we we have a contract with Barnes & Noble where Barnes & Noble says those have to go through us or you can only use ours. It's actually not very clear what the details of that contract are. And so trying to figure that out and trying to figure out how to work within what we've established with them that doesn't restrict faculty from doing the kinds of things they want to do. That's another kind of university-level policy issue. Tenure and promotions another challenge because, as Matt knows, historically, one follows this path through getting tenure and promotion, through publishing in specific journals, or getting your work shown and discussed at approved conferences. And that's a very narrow window to get into. If all the professors are all going to the same place, even if their stuff is meritorious, it's hard to get through the door. It's a long process. It's a challenging process. And for open work, whether it's open data or open hardware, open software, we don't really need to prove that our work has had impact that way. We can say, look, here's how many people are using it. Here's how many people are are forking it. Here's how many people are contributing to it. We're really having impact and we can get that just from our analytics and our metrics, which is why I'm here to start this community, helping me try to figure out what all that means in an academic context. So at the university level, the university says, there will be a process by which we deem people's work worthy of tenure and promotion, and that will be specific to each college. So you can't go to the university and say, hey, we should consider this open stuff and the metrics and analytics. We have to say, okay, we'll have to work with every college because in my department, because we used open source, we, because we're the, the artists and the games people, in a college of computing, we're the weirdos who they don't understand anyway. So they don't understand. What do you mean there aren't this many peer-reviewed journals that you can get your game published in? And what do you mean that your interactive media project doesn't show up in Google Scholar, right? So we have a document that's a rider to our tenure process and says one of the ways we demonstrate impact on our work is through open source. Then there are other colleges that say... Thou shalt be published in a journal, and nothing happens until thou art published in a journal.
1: While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter.
0: So Stephen, we are now going into the metrics conversation, which is really interesting to all of us here on the call. And you already alluded to this, that in the chaos community, we want to have this conversation and bring in others as well who are interested in this. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a great solution quite yet, but maybe we can talk about some of the challenges that we will have to overcome in these conversations about metrics and showing the impact that our work in the open in software and other types of open has.
4: So at a university level, there are really two groups of people who might be engaged in open work. There are the people who are hired staff, whether they work for the CIO's office or somebody else's office. You can go to those folks and say, look, we're really going to start worrying about license compliance, and we're really going to put a process in place where you have to prove you're compliant, or we're going to have to install software that checks to see if you're compliant or or whatever. And you can tell staff those kinds of things, and this is your job, and here are your guidelines, and you need to take these steps. On the other side, you have faculty who listen to no one and cannot be controlled. So, the, the university has a much harder time saying, you will follow this process. We have to be able to prove to faculty that doing things the open source way or the open hardware way or whatever actually is the same type of enlightened self interest that open source work is for major enterprises. One concept that I have in terms of this is that if you're gonna use the open community you work in and the metrics and the analytics from that to prove that you have impact, you have to have a good community. You have to have done your outreach, you have to do all the kinds of things that anybody who's a member of Chaos knows you should be doing to build community, to maintain community, to have good documentation, to have project management, to be able to have, your project needs boards right out there so anybody can hop on and know what you're focusing on now and be able to tell them, if you're doing open work and you want it to benefit your career, you have to be able to demonstrate the impact and you have to build a good community to get the good impact. And that's more likely the attraction to them. I- Kind of wanted to follow up
2: with you on that a little bit, Stephen, about the idea of a healthy community, because one of the challenges with working in an academic environment, especially with students who are essentially rotating in and out every four to six years, depending on their cycle, how are you sort of addressing that? Because from the larger open source community side, it's always been a little bit of a challenge to accept student contributions because there is this inherent biased Sometimes, again, students coming in because they feel like after you're done with your assignment, we're never going to see you again. And we want contributions from a more sustainable source. I don't agree with that position personally, but I have seen that come up. And I'm wondering how your program is sort of working to address that concern. So, on the
4: academic side, where the sustainability comes in is really through the faculty member or the staff member in the lab, that they're building their own community. Part of their core community is their research team and making sure that that research team has persistence of memory. What often happens, not for evil intent, but just because a lot of faculty don't understand, that's one of the things I hope to be able to change, at least at my university, is that faculty will often hire undergraduate students to build a thing but the faculty aren't focused on the long term they need the thing built and they hope if they're lucky other students will show up eventually and make sure the thing continues to run part of the instability if you will of working with students as contributors has to do with uninformed or poorly informed faculty or staff so One of the great things about having support for the community I had when Red Hat was supporting the group was I was able to have a full-time staff person as part of my team. And they could help be that persistence of memory. They could help work with the students to understand the implications and the responsibilities of being a good open source contributor. And I think a lot of the reasons that academically created open source gets a bad rap is because there's this gap, mm-hmm. right, that the faculty member doesn't understand. I was lucky enough to meet Matt two years ago when a colleague and I had some research supported by the Ford Foundation. We were looking into the Pi, PI community. And what came through in that research is, which has come through in Nadia Eggball's research, and of course what anybody who's involved in chaos knows, right, is that open source doesn't just need coders. It needs a wide range of folks with a wide range of what we call in our research capacities. Capacity for documentation and outreach and all these kinds of things. And professors, especially professors who aren't software developers, they don't understand those capacities. Industry understands those capacities and they have the budget for it they have HR, they have project managers, they have people like you, Brian, but professors and, and a lot of professors, unlike me, folks who went the straight PhD path, they went from university to university, to university. And what they've done has been supported by the university, and they never therefore think about what they need to be able to support their open projects. Mm-hmm. Does
2: that yeah. make sense? No, it totally makes sense. I'm glad to hear you're kind of putting the honest on the faculty to take care of that consistency and that historical knowledge that people need. I think that that is a key part of making this work because I have, and I'm not naming any names, but you know I've, I've talked to some faculty members that have just said, I'm just gonna toss my students into this project and this is all going to magically work. And I possibly might react badly to that, you never know. But it's just, it's one of those things where, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Faculty and staff, people who are there for the longer haul, should definitely be responsible for doing that. I think that'll go a long way to making academic
4: contributions less looked askance at. And it's not just the faculty member's responsibility. Traditional faculty members, which I am not, they work off this pool of grad students and if you've got a graduate student if you've trained your graduate students that this kind of capacity and long-term vision needs to be part of the work. If your graduate students are rotating in and out, or even if your undergrads are rotating in and out, if you as the faculty member have laid that skeleton, that infrastructure down that we need a run book, we need this, we need We need all of those pieces that you need to have a successful long-term project of any type, really. You need the the persistence of memory. And if you go into it and teach them to build it, then you, the faculty member, don't need to know the details of your code base. You don't need to know who forked what, when. You need to build the human infrastructure to support your technical infrastructure. And that's what I have learned being part of open source. I certainly didn't know it when I decided I wanted my kids to make some games. Yeah. And then bringing it back into the metrics
2: conversation, you know, some of the metrics that Chaos has put together are talking about, like, what are the paths to advancement? Because as you say, you can get students to become, if the path is clear for them to become more of a maintainer, then you have also built in, a rotating handoff system, so a senior undergraduate student, if they have the path clearly in place, they might be the maintainer on that part of the project for a while, as far as the university is concerned, and then hand it off to the junior undergraduate student when she comes up, and so forth. So there are good news, some metrics in chaos that'll kind of help you plot and see if that's working for you.
4: I'm looking forward to to getting involved. And while we've been picking on academia a bit, it's only fair to say that my students have run into the same problem working with open projects. The the key classic story was one of the early things we tried to do was build a video chat program for the OLPC that would be focused on the needs of a deaf user. All of the technology that we use today to meet as we're doing now, all that video technology is biased to audio first, even though it's a video chat program. And so if there's a delay on the line, if you will, right, if you've got a bandwidth drop, we lose video and we keep audio. The Deaf need exactly the opposite thing. Mm -hmm. So we're looking into this. It's a complicated stack. And one of the video, the layers we needed to process the video, the students reached out and said, hey, you know, we really don't understand why this isn't working on this small memory device. And unfortunately, the response was the oft-heard RTFM, right? Go look at the manual. And the kids did. And there was a heading in the manual for what they needed to find out and then a blank page.
0: So one thought that I had just listening to the conversation is a lot of what we are talking about with showing impact, building healthy community, managing our projects. That all seems to assume that we are building new tools, new projects, new communities. And from the work that Nadia Eggball did and that we've just had these conversations for the last couple of years, is it's not so much we need a lot of more new stuff. Sometimes it's a matter of maintaining the open source software or other resources, other open resources that we are developing and just maintaining them and improving them. And I was just curious if maybe you have some thoughts on how we can show impact in those areas and what kind of metrics we might be able to develop to say, hey, we are doing good things in the maintenance of work that is not originally
4: our own. So I do think it kind of depends on the role you have as a maintainer, right? I mean, if you're an engineering guy, it's here are the commits I made or here are the bugs I fixed. If you're a documentation person, I upgraded or, or I filled in the blank page on this manual. I think there are different ways to do it. And it's interesting that you point out to that, Georg, because There is a whole community of professors called Teaching Open Source, and they do things a lot differently than I do for good reason. I address students university-wide multidisciplinarily, and so new projects is one of the way I get them to understand open source. Most of these other professors are CS professors or other IT professors, and their goal is to get their students productively lost in code to find communities that will help be patient with students and mentor the students so that they can dive in to a large code base and, and understand what's going on. So it's slightly different, but I think those folks do a great job of that.
0: Awesome. We'll find a link and put it in the show notes for that. So we are coming up to the end of our podcast episode and we always like to end with a value add or picks, something that has brought value or meaning to your life recently. This can be something open source related, something metric related, or just anything really that you think you would like to share with others. I can go first. Today, I'm really grateful for crock pots. <laughs> I just made dinner during my lunch break, because I have meetings all the way to where we have to eat. then so I can cook dinner ahead of time.
2: Who wants to go next? I'm definitely gonna keep harping on this. I think this is my value add from the last episode I was helping on. And just be cognizant of your time. It is the most valuable resource that you have. We are all inundated with COVID time at this point, wherever you are in the world, it's affecting your life in some way or another. And I just urge you to be mindful. We talk about community health all the time, but individual mental health is so important. And I cannot urge everyone enough, take the time to reset and relax or whatever you need to do. It is that important. This has been a long, hard road walk. And I think that all of us deserve to give ourselves some time
4: and a break. And I'm going to piggyback on Brian a little bit. Lockdown initiated a both a physical and a mental health habit, where I, I've never been a great one for hitting the gym or regular exercise or stuff like that. But since we got Lockdown, I've been grateful for the opportunity to be able to walk 60 to 90 minutes a day, both for sanity and for physical health. And I just, because I live in Rochester, New York, I just bought a treadmill before everybody decided to buy a treadmill so that I could keep walking inside when I couldn't walk outside anymore. So I guess I'm grateful for the treadmill, but I think I'm also grateful that same kind of mindset that Brian has has put forward about self-care is huge.
3: I think that's all well said. I think my shout out I'll go with the Omaha Humane Society who helped me find my lost border collie puppy about a week ago. <laughs> the yeah. silly dog got out of his leash and he was gone on a cold rainy day for probably about three hours. And lo and behold, somebody got him in their car and took him to the Humane Society and it all worked out. So that was pretty awesome. And so I got special thanks to the person who got this crazy dog in their car to begin with.
0: That's a great story. I'm glad you got your dog back. Yay! So. Stephen, it was a pleasure talking with you. If people want to learn more about you and about the work that you're doing, where can they find you online?
4: So the best place for Open at RIT and the student work really is that webpage, the the RIT edu slash research slash open. That's got links to pretty much everything. My email address is on that. We have a philosophy of release early and often. I, I have a vague idea of what I'm doing and I'm gonna put it out there as often as possible and I'm gonna be wrong. And I, I'm gonna put that out there too. So please get in touch. If you've got any advice for me, I'll take it. That's awesome. And it seems
0: to have worked really well so far because you have a lot of alums all over the open source ecosystem now. So thank you very much,
4: Stephen, for coming on. Thanks for the invitation. It's great. Maybe. A year or two from now, we can come back and figure out what happened to make these metrics and analytics happen. We'll see. Yes. Keep the conversation going in the Chaos Project. Thank you,
0: Matt and Brian, for coming on as panelists today.
3: You bet.
2: Yeah, you're very welcome. It's always glad to uh, talk to everybody and even catch up
4: with Stephen because it's been a while. Brian and I have been running into each other for about 10, 12 years now. So it's good to see him again. (laughs) Yeah, actually, literally, I'm
2: very clumsy. So and finally,
0: thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And if you have ideas for future episodes, Topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us at podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your Chaos Community.